0: had a bit of reminiscence uh, about childhood uh, this evening. Um, when I was young, I really hated history. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't stand it. It was one of the subjects that I just didn't get on with. Um, and, and yet now, if, you re- if I read historical fiction or historical fact, I find it really, really interesting. Um, I don't know what it was, but it was the teachers that just didn't get the subject across, but it was just a subject, so I thought, well, oh, not history again. Um, but I suppose part of it is down to me, because what I certainly have is no concept of chronology. I've got no idea what year things happen. I mean, there, there are certain givens, you know, getting married and birth of children and things, I, I and get the year right on those, But um, but on a lot of things... Uh, i just no idea. I know roughly when it is. I've got no real idea uh, of chronology and perhaps that's why um, I'm not that great about history. But what we're looking at uh, as we go through the book of Judges is, is what is it that we can actually learn from history? And I, and I wonder if that's perhaps part of my problem as well is that I never thought there was an awful lot to learn from history because history at school was all about which king succeeded which king and at what time and what was going on in Europe or the rest of the world or whatever and I never quite got why it had that much interest or relevance to today. But actually, again, because I will read some historical fiction and historical facts now, you start to piece together things in a different way and sort of see a bigger picture and start to understand how things have unfolded Uh, I'm reading a book at the moment one of the points the author makes is that actually the point of studying history is so that we don't make the same mistakes again so he's saying that there's nothing you can actually learn from history that will help you prepare for the future except that you can look back and see mistakes that have been made and try and make sure that you don't make them again now, this guy's not a Christian, I'll refer to him again uh, later on at the end, but one, one of the thoughts about this is that if you go through the Old Testament, what you see is a people who are following God that nonetheless make the same mistakes time and time again. And God is trying to give them every opportunity to learn from those mistakes. And so it is that we're getting here into the Book of Judges. Uh, And the Book of Judges uh, is generally thought to cover uh, a period of history that's from about 1300 BC through to about 1000 BC. That's that's pretty rough, and that suits me as as much chronology as I can cope with. Uh, But uh, it's that sort of period. But what's important about it, I think, is that it's quite a different period from the period before, and the one that's going to come after. If we go back into the first books of the Bible, then we've got kind of quite a linear thing going on. You you get taken from Adam to Abraham, you get taken from Abraham through to Joseph uh, and his brothers, and then at that point, that's when you get the 12 tribes of Israel from Joseph uh, and his brothers and their descendants. But then you get a period where uh, Israel is in captivity, so you sort of start again with Moses and you work through to Joshua. And it's kind of quite a linear thing all about the Israelites. Suddenly, when we get to the book of Judges, because you've got these 12 tribes, and because through the book of Joshua they've all been promised different pockets of land, you suddenly have it all kind of breaking apart. It's become quite disparate. It's no longer all about one nation. It's starting from that point, but it's moving out uh, into little parts uh, of of the land, the land that's been given to them. So it is, I think, quite a different part. And um, at the time of the Exodus, of course, we're looking at a people in slavery. Uh, And by the time we get to Judges, we've got a people that are supposed to be taking on and taking over the world. What a change over that time. But there they are, they're promised the land and it's a promised land but it's going to be parceled up tribe by tribe. And so if you go to the book of Joshua, you see Joshua setting this out, each tribe, the places that they're going to go to, those lands allocated to them. Uh, And then we get to this point, point. I'm just going to read a bit in Joshua, and it's chapter 23, uh, and a few verses from there. Starting at verse (coughs) 5. This is what part of the promise is all about. So this is about the passing up of land, but this is the promise in general. The Lord your God himself will push them out for your sake. He will drive them out before you and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. Be very strong. Be careful to to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now the Lord has dri- driven out before you great and powerful nations to this day no one has been able to withstand you one of you routs the thousands because the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised so be very careful to love the Lord your God But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. So some quite strong warnings there that sort of echo the, the bit we read in Judges uh, when the angel comes and speaks uh, to the people. But being dispersed, the people of Israel were suddenly not just changing where they were going to be and how they were going to interact, but actually their common history was starting to change. They were starting to develop uh, separate histories to some extent. Um, and when we go into the book of Judges we'll find some of those stories that are going to be quite individualistic um, their tales of heroism they're, uh, the success that's come about from a good example these judges have been put in place in different tribes uh, to make different points to the people so they might learn more about God and l- learn more about his presence with them so it all becomes quite Different, I think. Um, and these sort of tales of heroism, these examples uh, of how to succeed have echoes in some of the heroic tales as well that we hear amongst uh, the Greeks and the Romans, uh, just sort of seeing how hero stories uh, develop up really. Uh, and if you think about the Greeks and the Romans, they too were, you know, those stories are quite often dispersed over quite wide lands as well, uh, and feature a variety of characters. And I think, as Anne was saying earlier, with the book of Judges, it's probably not a book that many of us know from start to finish. It's probably a book where we know certain stories, because they're really big and important stories in the Old Testament. Uh, And having that view of what was going on uh, throughout um, is often lost, and perhaps what we'll gain uh, through these studies over the coming weeks. But certainly at the start, the whole idea is about setting up. It's about saying, right, this is going to be our land. Um, We must drive out uh, the enemy and settle down. And in chapter 1, it kind of starts off well enough, really. They seek the Lord about uh, what's next to be done, uh, and it's Judah that's going to settle first, and Judah is obedient in that, It might seem a little bit when we've read those verses that they were thinking, "Hang on, we don't want to go out alone. Let's see if the Simeonites will come along with us. You know, a stronger case uh, for the work that we've got to do to to, uh, claim our land." Uh, But actually, the opposite is true. Judah was one of the biggest and and strongest of the tribes, uh, and Simeon was one of the smallest and weakest. So actually it wasn't a case of we need your help. It was let's work together because some of the land uh, is is kind of uh, not exactly intertwined but Simeon is going to sit within uh, Judah uh, and so actually it makes sense to work together. It also makes sense that Judah goes first because the Israelites have come out of Egypt uh, and they're going to be working from south to north and that south is Judah and Simeon. So it all makes actually perfect sense. Uh, and certainly what we see here is no sign of any disobedience of any kind at all. Um, so Judah was sort of showing some kindness in helping small Simeon, if you like, as a, as a tribe, uh, learn how the conquest works, how the invasion works, if you like, uh, and then would help them along with their own conquest and making sure that they kind of had that support of of a a big tribe right behind them if if they needed them. So not only did Judah win, but um, we we didn't quite read, but I'll I'll read a little bit of it here. Uh, That The conquered king, Adonai Bezek, he fled. They chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Uh, It seems an odd punishment, Uh, But we then go on to read how he, as a king, did that to his enemies as well. And basically it was saying it's taking you out of battle. Kings would have led their tribes into battle. uh, And if you've got no thumbs, you're not going to be able to hold a sword. If you've got no big toes, you're not going to be able to run away. So it was a punishment meted out to sort of say we're taking away your authority. Uh, And in fact, uh, in the next verse... Adonai uh, recognise recognises himself you know, why he's had that punishment and he says, no, God has paid me back for what I did to them. He's talking about the 70 kings uh, that he himself captured um, and meted out the same punishments. So although Judah captures Jerusalem at this time, that's mentioned in in verse eight, um, and that's where they take the captured king. Um, Jerusalem is not yet a focus for God's blessing. It's not the centre um, for the Israelites. It's become it's a city that they've they've looked at, wanted to take, uh, but at no point at this stage will we knowing that this is a place that God wants to bless and be present in. Uh, So it's just kind of worth noting as part of what comes up over here in the book of Judges. Um, But um, there is an acknowledgement within this passage as well about recent history. So we're saying, what do we learn from history? Uh, Well, what the Israelites had to learn from history is to acknowledge what had gone before Um, So Caleb himself is granted land. It's not about his tribe particularly, but it's about being granted lands for his own faithfulness and courage. Um, And although um, a Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, is also given land and protection amongst the people. So it's acknowledging the past, acknowledging what's happened, uh, and acknowledging that people are to be honoured for the part that they've played so far. So it's all looking quite good except that uh, the early success soon gives gives way to some compromise Uh, and the other tribes suddenly start becoming less successful. We didn't read through the whole passage. It's quite a long passage Uh, but you see that as we go through the rest of the tribes suddenly they're not having as much success uh, as Judah and Simeon. Um, And some of that, to be fair, to the people, is because as after land have been taken, the stretch is to go further and further north, and therefore further and further away from all the other tribes that are sort of stepping down where, where they've been given land. So, so, to some extent, you could say, humanly speaking, um, that uh, you can understand how that sort of um, dilutes over time that initial enthusiasm to do what God. Has wanted them to do, you know, as time goes on, as the miles get further and further away, uh, that becomes that much more difficult, humanly speaking. Um, But um, we we read that actually, when it comes to the tribe of Benjamin, they totally failed to drive out the Jebusites. That's in verse 21. Uh, Just as they did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. Uh, To this day, the Jebusites lived there with the Benjamites. So, Benjaminites. Um, So, you can see that actually that compromise of God is going to go before you and drive everybody out, um, that's not being followed anymore. Uh, And then we go on to read that Manasseh was also less successful, uh, but as the nation grew stronger, uh, so they were able to at least put their enemies into slavery. Uh, and then similar happens for a number of the others. Zebulon, the tribes of Joseph, Naphtali. Uh, given a bit of time, and to a lesser extent, they're able to uh, subjugate uh, their enemies uh, and have them uh, as slaves. But then as time goes on, we look at Ephraim and Asher, and they don't even achieve that much. Um, And in fact, if you look through the account, you see that Asher leaves the most towns in all the Canaanite land uh, unconquered. But I think the issue here is not about, well, how successful is warfare or not, but actually how much are the people following what God wants them to do or not. Uh, And although it's not expressed exactly how the tribes are feeling here, you kind of understand that there's a certain amount of fear here about what might happen if they go it alone as a tribe, as they try to um, push the enemy out. They've lost sight of the fact that God has promised to go before them. He's promised to go before all the tribes and drive the enemy out. That's the way he's expressed it. There's no sort of compromise, well, why don't you settle with these people here? What, yeah. As far as God is concerned... Um, these other nations are the enemy of God as well. They don't worship God, they don't acknowledge God, they live in a a kind of wickedness that he cannot tolerate and therefore part of his judgment on them is to push them out of their lands. But the tribes of Israel are stopping doing this. They're sort of holding back um, and they're not taking hold of that promise. They're not living by that promise. Uh, And so you could say that they're settled rather than being obedient. You see, God's covenant, if I say it, God's covenant was quite simple. He promised land. He promised the victories that would be needed to take that land. And then when that happens, everyone around would see that the Lord is the mighty God who will always prevail. All the people had to do was take hold of those promises in trust and faith and not let any compromise or fear creep into that situation. Let any of that weaken the covenant that the Lord had made with them. The instruction then is very clear as we've read in chapter 2 and verse 2. You shall not make a covenant with the people of this land but you shall break down their altars. This is all about the true God being known and seen and recognised. And this is what the people of Israel stopped doing they saw that it was easier to kind of live with a little bit less conflict, a little bit less warfare. Perhaps being a bit more at peace with the people who already occupied the land, not always wanting to subjugate those neighbours into slavery. And you know, by today's standards, we'd say, well actually that probably is God's will. God does want us to live in peace where we possibly can. God does want to follow Ways that point to him but uh, aren't military in the way that we uh, make God known surely that's right that, that makes good sense as a plan but you see back then God's plans did talk of conquest they did talk about defeating wickedness they did talk about a new future And when God talks to his people and talks to the tribes about the wars ahead, what he's also promising is a period of peace afterwards. But as we go through the book of Judges, we'll see that as a result of that disobedience, instead of there being periods of peace, we just find all the conflict protracted, the nation further divided, The nation losing its way from God and the nation having to cry out to be rescued by God once again. And as we go through we'll see that happen on many an occasion. So if by looking ahead we can see, because of the angel's appearance at Bokim, Uh, and calling that a place of uh, weeping, because that's what Bokim uh, apparently means, Um, we can look ahead and sort of see, well, actually going through the rest of the book of Judges, going through the rest of the Old Testament, we can see a people that keep turning away from God. And so we can see why that was a time of weeping when the Israelites realised that they'd let God down. But actually for the Israelites at that time, they were looking back. uh, And they'd look back to a time when they'd made promises to be faithful to God. To saying that they they would always follow his ways. That they would not uh, get involved with the nations that they were conquering. And you know in our Bibles, we have the book of Judges. I've got mine starting on page 226. I just have to flick back to 225, and that's where that promise is made. I know that just happens to be my printed Bible. It has nothing to do with the passage of history, but as I told you at the start, I'm not great on chronology. But we're not talking about uh, too big a time gap between Joshua talking to the people uh, and saying, before God, we're going to say to our God, we are here to serve him and obey him. And yet within a page, yes, I'm sure that's a passage of a certain amount of time, but within a page they've done just that, haven't they? So the angel is the voice of God. And the angel isn't just admonishing them for their lack of obedience, but the angel's also giving them prophetic warning of the consequences of their indifference to the way that God had planned for things to be done and by seeking perhaps an easier life because it talks about in verse 3, they, that that being they, the foreign nations In in my version sort of echoes what I read in Joshua earlier it says they, the foreign nations will become traps for you and their gods will become snares to you he's saying look you lose that deep and committed relationship that I as the Lord God has set up as a covenant you've lost that because you've been swayed by what the people already living in the land want you to learn about their culture their ways, their religions so we've said about It's what can we learn from history. So what can we learn? I think firstly we need to learn that God's greater purposes can be missed if we don't look for them. If we don't seek to serve him with obedience that sort of fits in with those purposes. We might not always understand exactly what those purposes are. It might take us uh, a lifetime of belief and searching to try and work those purposes out. But actually, if our hearts are aligned to God and not to other things, then he will guide us as he he tried to guide uh, the nation of Israel back in those days. This morning, uh, for those that were at church this morning, we had um, a child's cartoon on a film. Uh, And it was all about the Great Commission. And it was sort of saying, don't quite understand what the Great Commission is all about. And it just made it very simple and said, look, it's just about telling other people about Jesus. And sometimes our obedience can be as simple as knowing that God's in charge and allowing that to affect everything else. And secondly, I mentioned a writer earlier that talked about what we can learn from history is really what not to do as we go forward. Uh, And that's surely what the Old Testament is all about. Learning that actually there are mistakes that we all make today. It's not just because it's Old Testament times and Jesus has not yet come. It's because our human nature allows us to think about our own security, how we avoid fear, how we become comfortable more than it thinks about how we can serve the God who made us, created us and wanted us to have a close relationship with him so if Israel is struggling to learn that yes we can struggle to learn that but can we also get to the point where we feel supported by that, where we feel that actually our lives are changed by that you see this writer that I'm talking about isn't the Christian as I said earlier And he'd say that actually what we've learnt from history is that we don't have to rely on God anymore. There is no God. We've gone past the time when God is needed. But actually, that is going back to the same mistake that the Israelites made. Not that they didn't believe there was a God. They always had a belief in God. But actually, they were easily influenced by other gods presented to them. And thought, oh yes, we'll worship this pole, we'll worship uh, the way Baal asked asked us to to celebrate life, we'll do this, we'll do that. And and they tried to encapsulate lots of other things that God himself uh, had told them to avoid. Uh, So that person thinks he's learnt from history that there is no God and that we don't have to listen to him anymore. But actually if he's learning from mistakes... And the mistakes he needs to learn from are those that sort of say God is no longer important. I don't know where these studies will take us. Um, If you've come this evening hoping to hear Trevor on this subject, uh, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but at least Trevor will be here next week uh, and I'm sure he'll take this book uh, a stage further. So thank you very much.